And we will be on Lesson 8 of our series, From Self-Help to God's Help. And if you need a set of notes for that on Lesson 8, then uh, Larry has some and Len has some. So get their attention and they'll get a set of the notes to you so that you can scribble down if you care to. Any things we hit upon? Lesson 8. And while you're finding that and the guys are passing those out, let me remind you about tonight at 6.30. We have our annual adult Christmas fellowship in this room. And we have appetizers uh, for that that are being brought by whoever comes. And the stuff that uh, we're asking you to bring is listed in the program. It's divided up into two categories depending on the first letter of your last name. Uh, we'll determine what we ask you to bring. So take a look at that. And uh, tonight at 6.30, we'll enjoy each other's company. We always in, have a great time with that, including our white elephant gift exchange, which means that each person, uh, one per person, so if you come as a couple, bring one each of a white elephant gift. The white elephant gift is just uh, a, a kind of a gag gift, and we have uh, gag gifts that have come back every year that people keep trying to get rid of. So it's, it's worth coming just to find out who gets some of these gag gifts. I was going to mention a few of them, but you just have to come and see. So if you say, you know, I, didn't, I forgot I didn't get to my white elephant gift, well, they're gag gifts, so pull something out of the garage or something and put wrapping paper on it. You don't put your name on it, that's one. But you can just come without a, a white elephant gift. You can just watch everybody else then uh, open these. But uh, uh, make sure you do come, if you can at all, 6.30 tonight. And as I say, look in the program to see what uh, to bring. Now, for that, we have to uh, set up this room for the fellowship this evening. So that means when we conclude this session, any of you who can hang around, guys, uh, please do, because we're going to need to stack some of these chairs, move them out of here, move some tables in. And uh, we've got a couple of guys who are going to be up front directing what needs to go where. So if any of you can stick around for that, then that would be much appreciated and would help make the work much lighter and quicker. And we had to do this last week for the ladies' uh, Advent uh, uh, fellowship that was taking place on Tuesday. And I guess we had a bunch of people hang around. Uh, I wasn't feeling well, so I told you I wasn't going to stick around and shake anybody's hand. And so I left immediately, but it all got set up. It was beautiful. The event worked out uh, well. So thanks to all who helped. But I, but I begged off of, of that. Now, today at 1 o'clock, I have a funeral to uh, conduct. That's the first time a funeral's gotten a laugh uh, out, of, out of anyone, but nevertheless, I do have a funeral to conduct at 1 o'clock, so that means uh, I'll be leaving again, and uh, next week if we have to set up for something else, I'll think of something, something else <laughs> for me to leave. So seriously, uh, normally I would hang around and, and help out, but I have, to, I have to take off right after we're done here to get up to Allen Park uh, for that. So if any of you can stick around, that would be of great help. Keep praying about our building issues. I mentioned uh, briefly in the first hour that uh, it, is, it is a bit up in the air as to how many weeks in January uh, we are not going to be able to be in here, but rather we'll have to meet off-site. Uh, we had set up with our builder several months ago that it would be two, and we've been advertising that to you, the 5th and the 12th, uh, but it looks like uh, the 5th and the 12th are not going to be adequate which means uh, we probably have to find a different location than the one that we had reserved for the 5th and the 12th. Uh, we had West, Westfield Center in Trenton reserved for that. 
But it's not available the following week on the 19th. It's not available on the 26th. So if we had to meet uh, off-site three or four weeks, obviously we'd prefer to do it all at the same place rather than two here and two someplace else. So that's easier said than done. We've been looking at uh, a few uh, options. There is one place that is available. We're just not uh, convinced that it holds enough people for us. But uh, we will see if they have another room besides the main room that they could make available to us. But we've got to know all of that uh, by next week if we can so that we can clue you all in. And then uh, over the next few weeks, there's just going to be different things that are, are happening, even the remaining weeks that we meet in here prior to January. Um, uh, for example, they're coming in, is it, is it this week that they're coming in to tear tile out? This week. So this tile, I know everyone's going to miss this tile but <laughs> in this room, but the tile is, is coming out this week. So after tonight's fellowship, we have to get stuff completely out of here so that uh, they can start, uh, start with that. And so this uh, scrape, all this whatever's left underneath that, and then uh, those weeks that we are not meeting in here, one of the things they'll be doing is the flooring in here after having taken out the, the tile. So that means for at least two Sundays, next Sunday the 22nd and then the 29th, we'll be in here without this tile in here and just the floor as it's been scraped by these, these guys. So it's going to start in earnest. You're going to see uh, some changes happening, including, I don't know if it's this week or the following week, that the screen gets changed and the room gets uh, the orientation of the room. Which week is that? Do you remember? You think that's this week as well. So next Sunday when you come in, not only won't there be this lovely tile, uh, but the, the chairs will be uh, oriented a little bit differently to go to this wall because we have to move that screen over here because they're going to shore that wall uh, and it's going to be a couple of feet in this way and that screen is in the way. So it's got to be moved in order for them to put up the shoring wall, shoring wall to support it when they put in the beam and all that. So the next six weeks to eight weeks are going to be a lot of fun together. Just to keep praying about it and uh, let's be patient because it's all in a, a good, good cause and it'll be a great thing to advance the Lord's work when we get that completed. And we have a grand opening in the, in the spring and we invite the community to come to a number of events that uh, we can have in here, okay? All right, lesson eight in From Self-Help to God's Help. And we've been using a chart that is on each page in your notebook on the left side of each of these lessons, you have what is on the screen, this chart that has the four major components to how change happens in our lives from a biblical perspective. And we are now on the fourth of those four items. And that is on the left, middle, where it says fruit, and you see the uh, green uh, healthy tree. That's what we're going to look at today and next Sunday in our final session in this, in this series. So we've been looking at the fact that all of us have different situations, circumstances in life. At the top of that chart, those situations and circumstances are called the heat of life. And so you've got yours and I've got mine, and all of us have circumstances that challenge us. Uh, most of the time, those are difficult, unwanted circumstances. Sometimes they can even be blessings that we react to in a way that is contrary to uh, God's character and contrary to our best interests. So it can be blessings, can be the heat that causes the thorns in our lives, but usually it's adverse circumstances that we're having to deal with, and then we react to those, and that reaction causes the right, uh, the, the right side of that chart, 
the thorns in our lives. And those grow out of a root, a heart that we bring to the, the heat, the situation, the circumstance. And so you see the heart at the bottom there. It's got the negative sign. I bring a, a negative sinful heart to it. Thus I react uh, in, in, inappropriately, sinfully, and it produces ill consequences, the thorns. So we've got the situations. We've got the consequences of those situations because of our reaction and the heart we bring to it. So if it's going to change, it's going to have to be at that root level. And the only, the only thing that can change us at the root level is, uh, is to appropriate the cross of Christ and our new identity in Christ. The fact that for me to live is, is Christ. And it is Christ who, lives, it, Christ who lives in me. And we saw that from Galatians chapter 2 and, and verse 20 that God has given us a new identity and he's given us a new potential because of Christ and our relationship to him in, uh, due to the cross. So if we, if we do that, that then brings a different heart to the heat of life. And that is then that uh, left side, uh, a positive heart, uh, the other side. Now the, uh, the, a positive heart, that's okay, positive heart, that in turn then uh, bears good fruit. And that's what then Lesson 8 and Lesson 9 are about, this good fruit that comes from real heart change. So in Lesson 8, you see real heart change, and the big question we want to answer today is what type of heart produces good fruit? We have been diagnosing the, the problem over a number of weeks that causes us to have ill fruit in our lives. And the problem is... If you've been here for any of these weeks, you know the mantra that uh, what, what uh, comes out is because of what is inside, because of, because of our hearts. And so we've diagnosed that, we have seen that, but diagnosis, of course, is not enough. That's just the beginning. Uh, if we simply leave it at diagnosing and saying, you've got a problem, but then don't look to fix it, well, then that hasn't done us uh, any, any good at all. And further, it won't do us any good if we do what most of us uh, tend to do, and that is simply mask the symptoms rather than getting to the root of the problem. So in our behavior, we tend to simply mask the symptoms. And so I'll give you an example. If in a marital relationship uh, you have a couple that is arguing all the time, then they may come for counsel and say, you know, we need to learn some communication, what? What's the next word? Communication skills, right? So we need to learn how to communicate. So think about it. If the husband in that situation is a guy who likes to argue, he likes to argue because he loves to be, he's prideful and he loves to be right. Or, he likes to argue because he is angry and he's carrying around an angry heart with him. And so he is, he is willing to engage at the least provocation or no provocation. So he's, he's angry or he's proud and he likes to be seen as, as right. Uh, of course, that could be said of the, the wife as well. But either, either party is bringing this heart to the situation. And now they come and they say, we need communication skills. And if the person who is counseling them uncritically simply says, yeah, that's what you need to learn. You, you need to learn how to better communicate. What have you done for that guy or gal who is proud and angry? What you've actually done is you've equipped them <laughs> to put their pride and anger in effect 
in more efficient ways. So now they're just better at manifesting their pride. Now they're better at winning the argument. Now they're better at putting you in your place. Because you haven't changed, you haven't dealt with the heart, you've dealt with the symptom. The symptom is we argue all the time and we never get anywhere in our communication. That's all true, but it's just the symptom. The heart is I'm bringing pride and I'm bringing unresolved anger to the, the relationship. So it's God's love for us and for His people that overcomes uh, our sin. And so the good news is this, that good fruit is absolutely possible even when we are in adverse, difficult circumstances. Living a a God-centered, Christ-centered life is absolutely possible, one that displays God's power and His beauty, and it's not, and here's, you know, the good news for us, because none of us are super saints. It's not for uniquely uh, super godly people. Anybody who is a believer in Jesus and has His Spirit then has the desire to please God with his or her life. And so this kind of change then that brings forth good fruit is possible for every person here, assuming that you have that relationship with Christ and thus have his spirit living in you. And so where do, where do the, the problems in our communication, the problems in our relationships, the problems in our reactions to the heat of life come from? As we said, they, they come from the, the heart. And the Bible uses the heart as the core, the center of the individual. In fact, throughout the the Bible, the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Hebrew words that you used for heart, the Greek word that's used for heart, they both have to do with being at the center of something. Jonah was said to be in the center of the waves when he was cast out of the ship. Uh, Jesus is, in the New Testament, buried deep in the the heart of the earth. And these are both words that are sometimes translated heart. They mean to be at the the center of something. And so when the Bible talks about the Christian life, it talks about loving God with all of our hearts. And that's because God is not content with just a peripheral uh, and casual relationship with Him. But He wants to be at the center of our hearts and at the center of of how we think and, and talk and, and act. Now, that is in contrast to the way many people see the Christian life. The Christian life for many people is a matter of, of keeping rules. And if you, you, you keep the rules, then uh, that, will, that will keep you in line, that will produce better relationships for you, and, uh, and, and it focuses on external behavior. Uh, only to the exclusion of of the heart. God does care about uh, our external behavior, but God wants to get to the root of the problem and not simply mask the the problem over. And so, where do rules and this internal change, this heart change, how do they fit together? Well, please understand that love and rules are not mutually exclusive. Think of it this way. You've got a, a single woman who gets a, a new job. And uh, as she familiarizes herself with the workplace and walks around, uh, she sees the, the boss's office, and uh, outside the boss's office is a, a bulletin board. And on the bulletin board, the boss will often post schedules and do's and don'ts and things that you can get in trouble for, or warnings and you know all sorts of things. 
And uh, because she doesn't know the boss very well at, the, at this point, she may be intimidated. She may be a bit fearful about uh, those rules and about this particular person who occupies that, that office. Uh, he has some power uh, over her. She's vulnerable in that situation. Uh, so she sees the rules. She sees the do's and don'ts. And uh, she's a, a little bit at, at, Ill, at ease when she thinks about and is around the boss. But then suppose this. Suppose that the boss is a single male and he takes interest in her. And uh, they begin to date. Now, just for the sake of the illustration, just set aside work rules and, you know, and violations of work rules and all of that. Um, most workplaces have, have, have rules about that kind of thing. But just assume for the illustration that, that they do that and she gets to know him now in a more personal and intimate way. And she knows the way he thinks, she knows his heart, and she knows what it is he's trying to accomplish. Now, she passes that same office with that same bulletin board, and she looks at those rules and those do's and don'ts quite differently, doesn't she? Now, think about this. The rules didn't change at all. There is nothing on that bulletin board that changed. What changed? Her relationship with the one who makes the rules. And that's the way it goes for us in our view of what God demands of us. If we look at God's requirements for us, if we look for, at God's commands for us as onerous, as something that he's doing to us, that God is a killjoy that uh, doesn't want us to, to uh, enjoy life, uh, and, and any time we start to enjoy life, there's a, a rule that we're violating somewhere. Uh, if we see God that way, as someone to, to be feared and someone who is, does not have our best interest at heart, someone who we're always vulnerable of, of getting in trouble with, then that is going to affect profoundly the way we view the things he tells us to do. On the other hand, if we have a personal relationship with God, who we love and we trust, and we're cultivating that relationship with God, not only will it change the way we look at what he tells us to do, we'll embrace the things that he tells us to do. Because we know that in those things he has our best interests at heart. And as a result of that, it will develop a heart of obedience in us. A heart that desires to obey and embraces obedience to what God says is, is best. So let me ask it this way. If you were asked to summarize what it means to be a Christian, what would you say? Jesus was pressed by the teachers of the law to do that very thing, which is the greatest commandment. And do you remember Jesus' response to that? It's found in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40. Uh, but it's also found in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 31. And in both cases, Jesus said, Here are the, here's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, where do those, where do those two come from? In your notes on lesson eight, you see these key scripture passages. Deuteronomy chapter six is where we have the first and greatest command that Jesus gave in the New Testament. But here it is in the fifth book of your Bible in the Old Testament. Verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. So this is where we find that, that first commandment. And then uh, the second commandment is actually found in Leviticus chapter uh, 18. 
love your neighbor as yourself. And it's just buried in the midst of a bunch of other commands. And Jesus says on these two commands, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, hang all the law and the prophets. Now, how does he do that? You guys remember that we talked about the Ten Commandments and the fact that violations of commands 4 through 10 are first grounded in uh, violations of the first three that relate to God. And so when when we violate the horizontal commands in our relationships with one another, it's always because we have first violated a vertical command about having no other God before me or not taking uh, the Lord's name in, in vain. And so then when we do that, when we have severed in some way the vertical uh, fellowship that we are to have with God, then it will issue forth in the horizontal realm in the way we relate to one another. And that's why Jesus then says there are two commands, how you relate to God, how you relate to people. And on these two, how you relate to God is first, and then second is loving your neighbor as yourself. And you can't do the second unless you, are, unless you are doing the first. And so this heart of obedience is one that comes from loving God and loving people. And you see it in the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, First uh, Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7. Many of you are familiar with that passage, but it's one in which uh, Samuel is looking Uh, for uh, the next king. And God instructs Samuel to be careful that he doesn't simply focus on what the shepherd boy, David, looks like. In fact, in 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7, God says famously to to Samuel uh, that uh, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks where? God looks on on the heart. And so the Bible candidly depicts us as people whose hearts are continually going astray and vulnerable to going astray from God. And that's why radical change of the heart is necessary. And you see that again on your notes in Lesson 8 from Jeremiah chapter 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I'll forgive their wickedness will remember their sins no more. This is God t- talking about this tendency to drift and our hearts to go adrift. But He is giving us now new hearts. Ezekiel chapter 36. You can just jot this down. It's not in your notes, but Ezekiel 36 verses 24 to 28. Ezekiel talks about this new covenant and the new heart that is part of the new covenant that God makes with His people. He says, I'll take out of the nations, I'll gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people, 
and I will be your God. Now notice how both those passages, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, both of those connect God's law to the heart. And so God is saying this external behavior, conforming to what I tell you to do, what is, what is best for you, something you should desire because you trust me, but your willingness to do that and to do so willingly and voluntarily is a matter of whether or not, not your heart is attuned to me. And then in the New Testament, you have uh, the same kind of thing with regard to the heart. Notice Ephesians 3 in your notes. Ephesians three sixteen and 17. Paul says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I won't take time to read it, but in chapter 1 of Ephesians, Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 19, Paul has another prayer for the Ephesians, and it has at its center a transformation of, of the heart. So let's begin then to think about uh, your heat, your situation, your circumstances, and compare it and contrast it to somebody else in the Bible who had adverse circumstances and see how it is that they put this paradigm into effect and how, even though there was great potential for thorns to come out of the situation, instead of a cactus growing, a fruitful tree grew because of the right kind of heart. And that, and that uh, comparison uh, I want to do with, with Paul in the book of Philippians. Paul in the four chapters of the book of Philippians. Now you all remember what's going on. What's the heat of life? What is Paul's situation? So we're going to step through this chart looking at Paul's situation and how he handled it in the book of Philippians and then compare that to your situations and how you are handling, handling those. So the Bible tells us that on his second missionary journey, we saw a lot of Acts this morning, didn't we? Uh, in Acts chapter 16, Paul took a guy named Silas with him on a second missionary journey. One of the cities that they went to was a place called Philippi. They preached the gospel there, and they, and they actually planted a church there. Years later now, Paul is writing back to this, this church that he personally planted, helped start. And he's writing back to them now to encourage them to have joy even in the midst of their difficult circumstances. Because this Jewish opposition that I mentioned this morning is not only it affected Paul uh, and the leaders of the church primarily, but it also affected uh, the people in the church uh, too. So they were undergoing difficult circumstances. Uh, and Paul is writing to, to encourage them. And he's writing them from prison. Paul is in prison in Rome at the time he writes, under house arrest in Rome at the time he writes the four chapters of the letter of Philippians. So what's Paul's situation? You say it's not. It's, uh, it's not good. You know, he's in prison. He can't carry out uh, his mission, at least the way he had been carrying it out. He's got concerns, as you see in the letter to the Philippians, about rivalries and competition in the churches that he's responsible for. And so his circumstances are less than ideal, to put it mildly. 
And so his heart, Paul's heart, is going to come out now as you read then these four chapters that are the letter of Philippians. So that's Paul's situation, lousy. All right, now think about yours. Think about your own circumstance. What hardships are you in right now? You know, a couple of weeks ago, I asked you to write down the thing that you're most anxious about or the things you're most anxious about. Uh, but just think about that. Perhaps think about some things that have been added within the last couple of weeks or things you weren't able to think of that have come to the fore uh, within these last few weeks. Maybe it's a health issue, a family relationship, a work issue. You're enduring criticism, perhaps. You're having uh, frequent temptations and perhaps succumbing to those temptations. So here's Paul in the heat of life. He couldn't avoid living in a fallen world with all of its difficulties. And the truth is, neither can you, neither, neither can I. So that's his situation. Not good. Now let's compare and contrast then your situation, portions of which are probably not good as well. Challenges that you have. And let's then think about how you and how we respond. So what kinds of responses would you expect from someone in difficult situations? A difficult uh, circumstance like Paul is in. Well, in Philippians, we, we only see godly responses from, from Paul because he brings the right kind of heart to it. So let's just imagine for a moment, though, what ungodly responses to that situation would be like. Maybe one way to do that is think about how you would react or how I would react. What would an ungodly response to his situation look like? So I'm in prison, chained to a Roman guard, under house arrest for preaching the gospel. I can't carry out my mission. I've got all kinds of concerns about stuff that are, that's going on in the churches that God has allowed me to plant and to influence. So how might you respond? Anger? Frustration, despair, questioning God's goodness or God's wisdom, questioning whether or not you really believe that stuff anymore, that stuff being about the Christian faith, or pursuing self-sufficiency, your own self-righteousness, preoccupied with protecting what you have in your own comfort rather than bringing glory to God in whatever way he, he has for you in the situation. These are all ways that I, that you, we would be tempted to respond. And so how do you respond? What are your responses in the difficult situations of, of your life? What kinds of thoughts and words and attitudes and actions do you take in the difficulty that God has allowed in your life, the heat of your life? Think about how you typically react when things aren't going well. When difficulty comes into your life, do you question God's wisdom, His goodness, His power, His compassion? And friends, hear this. That is not a small sin. It assassinates, one author says, it assassinates the character of God. It is not a small sin for me, for you to question whether or not God cares for us in circumstances that, that we don't like. So using the paradigm, think about your heat, think about your situation, and think about how you typically respond in your words and in your attitudes. And then think about the 
cravings and beliefs that are ruling your heart that are causing that. Because remember, at the root of those thorns is the heart that we're bringing to it. So when the pressures increase, do you try to get the upper hand on the situation or on the people that are involved in the situation? Is it hard for you to trust God in the difficulty because you're afraid that you will be used or you'll somehow be manipulated? You say, you know, this person that that I'm with, I don't trust. Okay, that person may be indeed untrustworthy. But you can trust God to help you in a relationship with an untrustworthy person. Right? And yet, we demand, I'm going to have to have a different person. So I can get that different person a number of ways. I can get the different person by trading you in for a new model. Or I can, you know, if that's not an option for me because, you know, just divorce is not part of the deal for me. You know, I made a commitment. You know, I'd be really embarrassed with my family if I really walked out. So I won't actually walk out. I'll just sort of walk out. You, you know what I mean? I mean, I'll be there, but I won't be there. We'll live together, but we won't have a life together. So that's a, or the other way, you know, if I'm going to get a new model, maybe I can badger you long enough that you'll become what you're supposed to be. And in every last one of those, you're taking matters into your own hands rather than trusting God to work through what He has told you to do and how He has told you to do it and then work it out in His, his own timing. And so what kinds of cravings and beliefs then are, are ruling your heart? You know, Paul, Paul was concerned about a number of things that could potentially rule his heart and that were ruling the hearts of some of the people to whom he was writing. In chapter 1, he talks about selfish ambition. In chapter 3, self-righteousness. Chapters 2 and 4, about worry and anxiety. So how about you? You start to seize control because you can't be, because you're worried about being manipulated or you're worried about being used, as I said. Are you judgmental and critical of others? Gossiping and complaining about them? Let me just stop there. That, dear friends, that is not a small sin. Gossiping and complaining and criticizing about others are the typical ways that you respond to your heat. Are they driven by a desire for comfort? Are they fear-driven? Are they people-pleasing reactions? So if this thing's going to help you, that's the kind of analysis you've got to do. What's my heat? How do I react to it? What's at the heart? What's driving me? What desires and what beliefs are driving me? And then what are the consequences of that? So take the Philippians to whom Paul's writing. What kind of vicious circles could happen with them, with these potential beliefs and heart-ruling desires like selfish ambition and self-righteousness and anxiety? How would their sinful reactions make their difficult circumstances even worse and create new problems? So in Philippians 1, Paul says, 
this issues forth often in envy and rivalry in relationships. Ultimately, in chapter 3, it can result in personal destruction and even eternal punishment. So, friends, our reactions to our circumstances have consequences. And our responses, whether the right kinds of responses, whether ungodly responses, hear this, they create a new set of circumstances now that I have to deal with. See, we, we miss this. Okay, I'm in this difficult situation, but the way I'm reacting to the situation is making it worse. And we've been doing it for years. And that creates a whole new net set of circumstances. So, take a parenting example. You know, if I get irritated at my child because he or she does, does not obey, and I show that irritation in a sinful way, I create a whole new set of circumstances now. So when I sin in that situation, I make the problem worse. Even if my son ends up or my daughter ends up obeying me after I've flown off the handle and scared them. And when I respond in, in godly ways, and this is important for us to get, it doesn't guarantee that the child is going to respond as we want. But it does ensure that I'm not a hindrance. I will not be a hindrance to the work of God in that child's life. But if I'm reacting sinfully to their sin, I'm compounding it. I'm making it worse. So what consequences are you facing right now in your life because of your regular reactions to your heat, your situation, your circumstances? So how does the cross fit into this then? Bottom of the chart. We need change then from the, from the inside out. We need to dethrone the things that are ruling our hearts and, those need, and we need to enthrone truth and, and ultimately Christ. So in the book of Philippians, throughout these four chapters as Paul's got his own circumstances and he's weaving comments about that throughout, but he also is aware of their circumstances and their heat, and he's trying to address that throughout these four chapters. He, he sprinkles it with truth about Christ and about the cross. And so you could just go through those four chapters, and I would encourage you to do this. And just make a list of everything it says about Jesus and about his cross. And how it, makes a diff how it should make a difference. I'll just give you, give you a few. In the opening verses, he tells us that grace and peace are ours through Jesus. In chapter 1 and verse 6, remember he says, He that began a good work in you will, be, will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. That's chapter 1 and verse 6. He's, he's reminding us that we, we serve a faithful and a, and a sovereign God. In chapter 1 and verse 19, he reminds them that they have the, the Spirit of, of Christ. In chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, he reminds them that Christ is, has been raised and we can have confidence then in this one who has conquered death. I, I won't go through the whole list, but in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, you guys are familiar with what begins in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was, also was in Christ Jesus 
who though he were equal with God, he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, something to be grasped. Then it goes on to talk about how he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place. So on. So throughout just the short letter, Paul is reminding himself and he's reminding his readers of the work of the cross and the work of Christ. So instead of your learned, habitual reaction to your circumstances, if you were to do and focus on that, what kind of difference would that make? Make an absolutely, absolutely profound difference, wouldn't it? And here's the thing: we come together every week <laughs> and talk about this kind of stuff, that very kind of stuff, and we say, "Yeah, that's the stuff I believe." Yes, that's my view of the world. Yes, that's what I believe to to be true, and yet it ain't true Monday through Saturday. And, and dear friend. It, 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 I, you believe it's true intellectually. But you have got to meditate with all of your heart upon its truth in the heat of your circumstance. And to ask yourself hard questions. Why am I behaving this way when I say I believe that's true? And why have I been carrying this thing around with me not weeks, not months, years? when I believe the truth of Scripture and I believe the truth of the, the gospel. But I haven't appropriated it in my daily living. It's good on Sunday. It's good until the buzz of Sunday wears off. Did you know, and, and I'm, I'm all for this, as you'll be able to tell in a minute, but did you know that the week that we have for a typical evangelical church Sunday morning services, uh, Sunday night, typically, Wednesday. Anybody ever heard the phrase, three to thrive? In order for you to thrive in your Christian life, you need these three, you need these three services. Well, we made that up. We just completely made that up. There's nothing about that structure in Scripture. It's all fine. It's all good. But here's why I bring it up. Some people live from one service to the next. And they live from the glow and the reminder of one service to the next. And depending on how hot the heat is of life, that glow might go out real quickly. You know, by this afternoon. And if you come on Sunday night, by the time you get home. And then you go through Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, and then maybe you're willing to show up to get another oomph. And this is the way people go through their lives. When what we ought to be doing is, is this paradigm of change on a regular basis, asking ourselves, what does the Bible teach that is true about me, true about God, and, and true because of the cross of Jesus and what he is intent to do in the lives of his, his people? And so then what kind of fruit comes out of all this? And we're done. And we have to be because it's time. So what kind of fruit do you observe then in your life? You know, take Paul in his situation. How does he respond to 
negative and positive circumstances. And so in the book of Philippians, he gives some concrete ways that we should see fruit of obedience to God in our lives in reaction to our circumstances, both good and and bad. And so ask yourself, do I see things like a love and concern for others in my life? That should be the fruit of the kind of heart that the cross creates and that we bring to our circumstances. Do, do I have as paramount in my life a concern for Christ's reputation and not, and not my own? Do I seek to act in humility and tenderness and compassion in my relationships with others? These are all things you see in those four short chapters of the book of Philippians. So in what, what kind of specific good fruit do you observe in your own life? Do you express godly emotions? Do you move toward people you need to forgive or seek forgiveness from? Are you patient as you deal with their weaknesses and sins? How's the gospel shaping the way you talk and the way you think? And then what good effects result from that good personal fruit? Good effects now in your relationships. And then we're done. But you know, Paul gives some in Philippians. People are evangelized as a result of the right kind of fruit. Christians are encouraged to be bold. Believers are encouraged to to pray. So what kind of fruit and effects are you seeing from the fruit in your own life? Good or bad, what kind of effects are you seeing then in your circumstances and in your relationships? All right, now next week we're going to continue looking at and conclude our series looking at the fruit that Christ wants to produce in in our lives. Let me just ask you to do this, and then we'll pray and be done. And any of you that can stick around to help with the setup in here, then uh, guys, please please do that. But let me ask you to take the book of Philippians. It's very short, four chapters. Take the book of Philippians and just go through and take that chart. Think about Paul's heat. You know, think about the, the, the kinds of beliefs and ruling desires that he identifies that bring forth envy and strife and some of the thorns, potential and real, that he identifies there. Then think about what he says about Christ and, and the cross and how that should then change the heart that we bring to the circumstance. And then the kind of good fruit that can come out of that, all identified in the four chapters of Philippians and the good effects that it can have on ourselves and and on others. I encourage you to do that this week. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to think about your process of change in the lives of your people. Thank you, Lord, that you you will not leave us where we are if we're your children. That, Lord, you continue to come after us, that you continue to chide us, that you continue by your Spirit to convict us, and you do all of this because you love us. And Lord, you, are, you desire and you deserve our hearts, our worship, our thoughts, our words, our deeds. Lord, help us not to be Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday Christians. Help us to be people who day by day, moment by moment, hour by hour, are seeking to show Christ in our attitudes and our words and our behavior. Lord, we know what a struggle it is. I know what a struggle it is for me. 
Lord, when I get in the same kind of circumstance that pushes my button, I just instinctively react in particular ways. Thank you, Lord, for showing me that. And thank you, Lord, for for convicting me of that. And Lord, thank you for providing the instruction that I need and and the Holy Spirit that I most desperately need inside of me, creating a new heart so that I can react in new ways. So Lord, I pray that you'll continue to do your work in me. I pray that you'll continue to do your work in us. And Lord, do that work this afternoon and this week. And we ask you to bring us back safely next Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, if you can uh, stick around and help.